0: medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. Welcome back to Geological. I am delighted today to be sitting down with Chip Chase. Chip graduated from the New England School of Acupuncture way back in the dark ages of 1984. He is the author of numerous articles. I'm not even going to try to list them as the list would be longer than your arm, other than to say that the latest one he co-authored in the most recent edition of The Lantern, it's worth your time. And it's germane to today's conversation as well. Chip is the translator, or he has co authored a number of books, including The Yellow Emperor's Classic of Acupuncture and Moxibustion, a Chinboe anthology, and he's done books both on the Extraordinary Vessels and the Channel Divergences. I don't know how he has time for all this, as he also maintains a busy practice and he wanders off into the wild for days or weeks at a time. Maybe it has something to do with his inquiry into Taoism and the internal cultivation arts. We're gonna get into that a little bit later. Additionally, CHIP is part of the group that teaches engaging vitality. This is a series of tools and methods that explores the overlap between Chinese medicine and osteopathic sensing and palpation. We're sitting down here today for a discussion of the engaging vitality work, along with a look at the eight extras, the divergences, and how we might be able to sense into some of the Chinese medicine concepts Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AcuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can, too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit youfastneedles.com slash Geological to learn how.
1: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, President of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumpsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Me Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
0: i love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, The Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code GEOLOGICAL at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Chip, so glad to have you here on GEOLOGICAL. Thanks
2: for having me. It's really fun.
0: Yeah, I, I always love hanging out and talking with you, man. We could just go on forever. We've had some discussions on the side before we've sat down here today. So in some ways, our listeners are are jumping in in the middle. I want to start today talking about palpation and sensing. You know, we have a lot of theory in Chinese medicine, these mental models, if you will, these ideas of things like Zheng qi, Yuan qi, Jing Shen, this stuff. And it can get kind of heady. And in addition to being heady, we're talking about something that's outside of our particular cultural point of view. You and I have had discussions about this. And one of the things that you come back to again and again that I think is helpful, and you say is helpful as well, is having these palpatory landmarks to have a way of sensing that can complement the mental models in our head. So I'd like to begin today with talking about these palpatory landmarks and how to learn to sense and utilize this kind of information.
2: If we take qi seriously, then, you know, virtually any way that qi expresses itself in the body, from my perspective, it it should be palpable to one extent or another. I mean, that's part of our story that we tell around traditional East Asian medicine, like even emotions are linked with the directionality of the qi uh for instance you know so if if that's true then that should be uh palpable and uh you know the pulse we we we, we pulse diagnosis is bedrock uh, palpatory referent for us in in chinese medicine and uh you know if the pulse is a reflection of the qi as a whole then it should be palpable globally right whatever that qi is coming through the pulse should be something that is palpable globally in one way or another and if qi is uh, mediated through you know, more than just the vascular system, then you know there should be many different uh, palpatory uh, reference for qi. and and uh, you know
0: each of these will give us another angle on what's going on with the qi. So that's the premise. How do we actually do it? I mean, what what are you actually doing? What are you attending to? What are you experiencing? I mean, what part of the the part that sort of senses and knows is being engaged here. How do we do this stuff?
2: Well, what we're drawing from is many of the palpatory tools and maybe even more importantly, the overall palpatory sensibilities that are coming out of you know, manual osteopathy, uh, particularly uh, cranial uh, and visceral currents of uh, and osteopathy. There's a whole repertoire of palpatory phenomena that they attend to in those disciplines. And, uh, you know, they're very learnable and they translate very well into traditional East Asian medicine. They make tangible many of the passages in the medical and even the internal cultivation literature that is seemingly, you know, kind of abstract, otherwise mystical, maybe more like a philosophical premise than something that you can actually do something with.
0: Well, I mean, in some ways, and I've had a little experience with this and done a little study of my own, but some of this osteopathic type listening, it's pretty subtle stuff.
2: Subtle until you learn it. I don't think it's intrinsically any more subtle than pulse diagnosis or anything like that. And, uh, I mean, it, it's eminently learnable. You devote a couple of years to it. And if I can do it, anybody can, really, <laughs> I think. I don't, I don't. <laughs> That's funny. That's what I said about uh, Chinese. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's just a matter of being persistent, right? It, it, and, you know, it's transmissibility into traditional East Asian medical practices. It's fairly fluid. And it actually, I think, makes a lot of intuitive sense.
0: In a moment, I want to ask you some more specific questions about some of these palpatory references for some of these ideas that we have in Chinese medicine. But before that, and I know that you guys teach this over the course of like weeks and months, and this is a show that lasts roughly an hour. But for our listeners that might be interested, or at least to get kind of a sense of what we're talking about here, how would someone begin paying attention and sensing into some of the stuff that you guys listen to? Feeling the pulse is one thing. You stick your fingers on it, and there's this thing going boom, 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 right? You could even put a machine on a person where their pulse is, and, and, and you would feel that. But the stuff that you're talking about is a little bit more subtle than that. So if somebody wants to begin to approach this kind of thing, how do they begin
2: you know, the first thing we say is you got to get your yourself out of the way. You know, any expectations you might have about what you should be feeling or could be feeling or can't feel, you just got to uh, let that go. And then I think the quality of the the contact that you have with the chi is uh, crucial as well. That I'm a bit of a stickler on this point that, you know, we don't say that our hands are like water our hands are water and that, you know, that fluid, receptive quality, it's bedrock to being able to feel much of anything and just not having an agenda about, oh, I, can I feel that? And that sort of thing. Those are, those are two uh, uh, fundamental things that have to be in place. And then once they're in place, then very quickly, the issue is not, oh, can I feel something? The issue is, oh, I'm feeling all these different things, and which ones of these things that I'm feeling are significant? How much of this is signal and how much of this is noise? We've trained enough people in this now that if they practice it all after you know the first weekend that we do, the issue is not that they're not feeling things. The issue is that, oh, they're, they're feeling things that maybe are not significant for us, but they're definitely feeling things.
0: So it's not that there's not enough information coming in, but maybe there's actually so much and and we don't quite know how to make sense of it yet. Not sure what's important. Like you said, signal versus noise.
2: Right. The the tendency is to go, oh, I feel one side is warmer than the other or something like that. Is that what you're talking about? You know, and that may or may not be significant, but that's not anything that we particularly do anything with in the work that we do. You know, it's like, oh, oh, that's the first thing I feel. Oh, is that what you're talking about? No, you have. it's a a process, I think, of learning how to filter for these things. It, It takes a little time.
0: You know, on one hand, I think we all know that it takes time to cultivate ourselves and it takes time to learn this medicine. You know, it takes years, maybe decades. And then there's this other part of us that's like, I'm going to this weekend workshop and I want to go in Monday morning and I want to make a difference to my patients right now. So, in some ways, there's work for us to do in our clinic. And then at the same time, you know, what I'm hearing is there's a way of settling and quieting and listening and sensing. And that takes time. And we may not even be able to use that information for a period of time until we get a little deeper into it. How do you work with that gap where you're learning something new? It's going to help you, but it might not help you for another few months or maybe a year or so?
2: It's just a question of investment. You do anything that has a long-term payoff, you have to make an investment in it, I think. I think if you sit down to meditate and you think you're any good at it, you're so bad at it, you don't even realize how bad you're at. I think that's a great example. that it's, it's something that's cultivated over a long period of time. I've you know, recently been practicing Chinese calligraphy, you know, and I just laugh at how bad I am at it, right? But I I can see myself getting better, right? But, you know, taking a weekend calligraphy class or working with my tutor for, uh, you know, a weekend is on the face of it, not going to get me anywhere. It's one of those kinds of things. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be also taking classes that have, you know, some sort of immediate payout. But, you know, I think if we're serious about, working with qi in broadening and deepening our experience of qi, then it's it's worth just doing this. You do it and when you can't feel something, you don't. there's no sort of emotional charge around it or frustration, you just kind of move on. But it happens faster than you would think that you start to feel things and it gets you interested in, in what's going on. I mean, it's not that different from learning pulse diagnosis as far as I'm concerned.
0: A lot of this EV stuff, is based on, like you were saying, the cranial osteopathy that really came to the fore. I guess that was developed or maybe discovered or rediscovered, depending on how you want to look at it, in the last century. Some interesting stuff there. And you guys have a way of having some of these osteopathic sensings and ways of looking at things line up with some of the things that we're familiar with in Chinese medicine. Could you go into a little bit of that for us?
2: Well, and let's start with how we talk about a balanced pulse, right? We say, you know, like that's that's our one of our benchmarks for the chi being balanced is pulse is balanced. Well, that's also a global phenomena, and we break that down, we say, well, the qi is settled, it's supple, it's integrated, and it's open. And those are four interrelated qualities that we can discern in the pulse, but we can also discern those in the system as a whole. And those are palpatory reference for the chi settling and uh, reaching that place where it can begin to balance itself out. That's the first step on a pathway to, you know, deep and transformative dynamic stillness. You know, another palpatory referent is you know, when we talk about the yang rhythm, which, if you people are familiar with cranial work, you know, you talk about the cranial rhythmic impulse. Uh, and the, it's, that yang rhythm is for us, it's a a respiration that's independent of the pulmonary respiration, you know, six to eight or 12 cycles a minute that is a measure for us of the yang aspects of the chi, And of course, you know, you don't have pure yang. You have yin aspects within that and yang aspects within that. That's a brilliant tool for us in a variety of different ways to get a sense of the overall vitality and also like where the chi is the most restricted, least open. It's an immediate measure. It, it locks up if you're starting to overtreat someone. You know, the next kind of layer down that has more to do with yin aspects and particularly aspects that are more reflective of how essence is informing the chi and blood the fluid tide is a much slower and typically more longitudinal rhythm has a fluidic quality you know immensely helpful there uh for you know you want to say oh we're working with essence chi that sort of thing you know if the fluid tide isn't happening I question how effective one's engagement of the essence really is if, if the f- overall fluidity in the system isn't engaged. And I think you know that is a premise that comes both from the osteopathic tradition, but you also see that in the internal cultivation literature. It's really fascinating how they talk about these things in very similar ways.
0: I'm curious to hear more about that. The Taoist literature, I mean, I've read the Tao Te Ching, or I I attempt to read on occasion the Tao Te Ching. You know, I open it up and I'm often more confused than enlightened by it, although on occasion it does seem to speak. You know, again, this is one of these things, Taoism, we didn't grow up with any of this. We haven't had that much exposure to it. I mean, I'm this guy from the Midwest. You're this white guy from uh, Colorado how do folks like us, how can we start to make sense of some of these things that are so far away from our culture? And if we haven't engaged it in the original language, or we haven't studied it in some deep way, in some sort of setting, how can we start to sort of drink from that well? You've done a couple of books that seem to touch on this, you know, in particular, the one on the extraordinary vessels.
2: The Da is Ching is what? It's the the second most translated book on the planet, I think, after the Bible. I think that's right. And, you know, I think part of the appeal of that book is that it does transcend culture. I, you know, I, I don't know how I, uh, those ideas are, you know, certainly arise out of a particular culture, they arise out of a culture that is nearly as foreign to a modern Chinese uh, national growing up in the People's Republic of China than it is an aging hippie in Colorado or the Midwest. I think we don't want to give short shrift to the capacity to resonate on that level. And I think where that capacity comes from is just a willingness to get still, shut up, and pay attention. If you do that, then a lot of that stuff starts to make sense. That's how that works, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you just have to actually get quiet and pay attention. And the truth of a lot of what that book is talking about does become apparent.
0: You know, I hear you say it, and it makes sense. And the piece about if you can quiet down and get still, that there's something in, in there that shows up as well. I remember reading a book uh, sometime back. What's that guy's name? Brad something. He's a Zen guy. He's got a great title to his book on Dogan. It's called Sit Down and Shut Up. Or is it Shut Up and Sit Down? I think it's Sit Down and Shut Up, which are really simple instructions. And simple doesn't mean easy.
2: Well, let me give you an example, though. You know, we were talking about the fluid tide and the, the importance of that fluidity as the first expression of Form in the body because you know you you brought up the Tao Te Ching and the earliest version of the Tao Te Ching uh, came from Guodian and it was unearthed in the 90s and there's actually a new chapter. And the title of the chapter is Great Unity Gives Birth to Water or Fluidity. And it's a new cosmology. It's not like the one gives birth to the two, the two gives birth to the three, the standard one that we all know from Lao Tzu. This is the first way in which unity becomes. Embodied in the world is in a quality of fluidity, and then heaven and earth uh, show up, and and it's a, also this kind of recursive, kind of bootstrapping thing where fluidity is what helps unity then produce heaven and earth and whatnot. There's a, a, a separate chapter, Tai yi Sheng Shui, is the uh, on that, and that's probably the base level uh, expression of how this concept of fluidity being a precursor to form and structure i'm calling it our literature i'm not saying oh i'm some foreigner to this literature i this is my literature this is my tradition at this point you know i spent Forty years swimming around in these waters it may be uh, in the shallow end of the pool, but nonetheless, I consider it mine. It's part of the medical tradition and, and we see it's, it's right here. it's not this foreign thing that we're, we're importing from you know some Western osteopathic idea about
0: fluidity. so well, it's interesting too to me especially to hear this tai yin sheng shui, that this aspect of fluidity, I mean, this is the the very first thing. And the the, the osteopaths, they're really into the fluid ties. I mean, especially those biodynamic guys, as I understand it, my limited understanding, they're really into these different aspects of both fluidity and stillness.
2: Those are two currents in the overall sea of internal cultivation in in Asia and particularly in China that are of great interest to me. And and you see these these people, it's it's fascinating to watch them kind of appeal to Asian experiences of these phenomena to explain it themselves. They may go to India, they may go to China, but they're they're looking for some language. And in fact, the combination of well they can talk you know much more explicitly and clearly about the palpatory experience and then what we have coming out of asia is a larger conceptual framework that makes a lot of sense to them and, and they appeal to that so there's this mutual informing this of experience that is uh, it's really wonderful and we're and we can take that and really apply that in a very pragmatic way in chinese medicine and acupuncture and herbal medicine as well especially with the fluids especially with the fluids
3: hello everyone and cecil Sturman here It's at annsecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
0: Just hearing you a few moments ago talk about that you've been swimming in these waters. You've been reading these books. You've been swimming in these waters. It might be the shallow end of the pool, but you're in the pool. And I remember a, a conversation with the guys at Eastland Press some months ago when I was in Seattle. It's, it's actually one of the shows, the one on the early history of Eastland Press. And one of the things that Dan and John talked about was that Chinese medicine isn't just something that's over there and we're kind of grabbing pieces of it over here, but it, it's actually something that's ours as well. And we have our piece to contribute. It's not like it's someone else's tradition. It's also our tradition, and it's our job to take what we have and blend it with what we're getting and evolve it along. And and in fact, I I think when you look at the history of Chinese medicine, dynasty to dynasty, place to place, we see this blending and this incredible evolution that happens in all kinds of different ways. I mean, it's more like a weedy garden than it is a cultivated field. You know, there's just so many different currents and, and ways of taking some very basic principles and applying those first principles and seeing how does this work and how can I help people with it?
2: You know, a great example of that, the engaging vitality work and coming out of the osteopathy is two principles that, you know, more than the techniques, it's very explicitly stated that that self-regulatory mechanism in in the body, what we, you know, we talk about as chi, in all its manifestations, that that's inherently intelligent, that it's smart, and that what we fundamentally have to do is to listen to that. It's very explicitly used the word listen, that if we listen to that, it'll tell us what the problem is. It won't tell us necessarily what to do about it, but it will tell us what the problem is. And this is explicitly laid out in the osteopathic tradition. Now, I think that is not a particularly foreign idea to most practitioners of traditional East Asian medicine, that that's like, oh yeah, they're on board with that. But where exactly in our literature does it say that? Well, if we think about it, most often we say, oh, the chi is excess or deficient. We're using active verbs to do things to the chi. We're tonifying, we're draining. We're not really talking about the inherent intelligence of the chi. And yet, One of the, you know, the fundamental premises of Taoism, uh, Taoist philosophy, you know, coming out of Laozi is this notion of ziran, you know, the self-so nature, the spontaneity, the naturalness. That what is that in the naturalness of the Tao, the expression of that in the body, but in intelligence. And this is a great example of how, you know, we have these two different kinds of traditions having a similar insight and they can inform one another and create something new. And that's also... Been happening in medicine, particularly medicine in Asia, for millennia. That Indian ideas have made it to China, Chinese ideas have made it to India and Tibet, and that sort of thing. And it's just happening at a faster and more uh, nuanced rate than ever before in history, like
0: everything else. I want to talk about the extraordinary vessels. You've done a little book on that. I think it's only, what, about two inches thick, just a little one. In that book, It seems like there's some alchemical aspects to the extraordinary vessels. I want to get into that in a moment. The other thing that I've been hearing, just I talked to lots of different people on the podcast, and I've been hearing this idea lately about the eight extras as being very helpful for psycho-emotive issues as well. And it sounds like traditionally, they've also been used for different kinds of alchemical transformations. I was wondering if you have some thoughts about that.
2: The Ba Mai Cao, the Li Jen's book on the Eight Extraordinary Vessels, uh, was literally the first text that I studied when I got out of acupuncture school. I had a little bit of Chinese, and Kiko Matsumoto had been at the school when I was there, not only taught me some Japanese acupuncture, but just really got me interested in the whole process by which we look at texts and do things, something practical with them. So as I'm trying to become my own practitioner, I pick up this Ba Mai Kao. And in the first couple of introductory chapters, it becomes very clear that, uh, Li Shijian makes it clear that we have to really understand the medicine and the alchemy, that these are very separate. They are definitely separate, but they are overlapping domains. So that, I think, is where I got interested in the internal alchemy aspects of things, you know, through the Chijing Ba cow. And, you know, then when Mikishima and I started to do a, a formal translation in the late 90s, done that for many years, I had this idea that, oh, I'm going to do some research on this. And what's going to happen is that I'm going to figure out some sort of extraordinary vessel Qigong that uh, Li Shijian was doing. And that he's actually quoting from a, a wide swath of the internal cultivation literature in a way that makes it difficult to nail down any one tradition. It's sort of the common property of the tradition as a whole, as opposed to any one particular current of it. But The fascinating thing for me was that in literally every passage that Li Shijian quotes in his uh, discussion of the extraordinary vessels, it's about stillness. It's about this idea of dynamic stillness. And that he may be talking about primal yang or essence chi, but when he's bringing in the uh, alchemical aspect, it's all about stillness. And that we see is a common thread throughout the internal cultivation traditions. You may be doing whatever you're doing, moving the chi around, all that sort of thing, bringing chi up the back, down the front, you know, microcosmic orbit. It's happening in a ground of stillness, and the end place is a ground of stillness. Whatever we're going to say about the extraordinary vessels in relationship to the internal cultivation tradition has to acknowledge the centrality of that principle in what we're going to do with them. You know, if we're going to say, okay, we're going to use the extraordinary vessels to access primal chi, well, that actually happens in a ground of dynamic stillness. If we're going to say that we are going to be helping somebody with their anxiety or making them 10% happier, or whether we're going to be helping them become enlightened or whatever. All of that, whatever our engagement of the chi through the extraordinary vessels is, is really happening in a ground of stillness. It's really easy to kind of acknowledge that and then set it aside, because it, it's much easier to go, okay, I've got this protocol for this. This is how I'm going to access the primal chi, or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And that sort of gets overlooked. So.
0: So, this brings up a question for me. I feel like my 13 year old niece. She's always coming to me and going, I have have a question. I have a bunch of questions (laughs)
2: on that order.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But so, stillness, action happening against a background of stillness, stillness as the ground for action arising. I mean, in some ways, we can look at that and go, well, that's a way of looking at your basic how yin and yang interact with each other as practitioners. We are paid and our patients expect us to do something, to be active, to get something done, right? That's implicit in the agreement of someone coming to a practitioner for the most part. And what I'm hearing you, you say is that any action we do comes from this ground of stillness. So, so a couple questions on that. How do I get to this? Is it the patient that needs to be still? Is it the practitioner that needs to be still? Do they both need to be still? As, as practitioners, and you know, we need to be doing something, right? Because, I mean, people are paying us and they want results. But it sounds like it's helpful. And in my experience, I have found it to be helpful as well, that if I can come from that place of quiet, then something else can happen, but it's not necessarily coming from doing. I mean, this really gets into that whole paradox about you know, doing, not doing. I'd like to get your thoughts from the practitioner side, where it is helpful for us to be in relation to stillness as we're busy going about our day helping people. I
2: don't wander around my office like a zombie, you know, with my arms out front, you know, trying to be really still, right? I think there's the capacity to get yourself out of the way and downregulate your system in a demonstrable way that is part of the toolkit of being an effective practitioner. You know, even if that's to the extent that, well, you're able to work past the three cups of coffee you had before you see your first patient in the morning, even if it's only on that level. So, I mean, for sure, we have to do stillness. But You know, if we think about it, what we're doing is we're doing what we can to help create the conditions of that moving from settling, suppling, integrating, and opening to something deeper, some deeper level of stillness, especially if we're talking about working on an emotional level and, you know, some sort of a transpersonal level uh, with the extraordinary vessels, that we're helping our patients kind of... In to our own stillness, our own capacity to do that, and it can occur in a very workaday kind of an environment. It's it's something that you learn how to do. It's one of the things that for years I had to make sure that my students could do before I'd let them be in the office with me, uh, be in the in the clinic with me, uh, with patients that they could come in from being out, making sure a farm of prescription got filled or something like that and come in and then downregulate, get themselves out of the way and, and at least be able to pay attention to what's going on and not be adding their own turmoil and their chi to things. So, I mean, as soon as we're actually talking about something like clinical practice where we have to do something, we have to accomplish something in a finite amount of time, then this stillness practice actually it makes us okay, what are the palpatory reference that we have for stillness within ourselves and where is my patient in that whole continuum of getting quieter and quieter and quieter?
0: You use the term down regulation. I've heard other people use it as well, but I'm not sure that I completely understand what it means.
2: The first thing is is you, your breathing is gonna slow down, heart rate's gonna slow down. You can use your breathing to voluntarily be a way of slowing your heart rate and you can slow that and you can reduce that that sort of ambient buzz that you have going on in your nervous system again like you use a coffee analogy like how do you feel after three cups of coffee great okay okay well, yeah. Yeah, you feel good, but that's not the chi being turned on. As a matter of fact, that's a thing that actually happens as we feel the system start to downregulate. That you say, okay, the person's settling into the table, for instance. And yet, after a little while, you start to feel this zzzz, And that's more like, that's not the chi being activated. That's just like off-gassing. That's like, you know, lying in bed at night next to your partner and you're all snuggled up and then all of a sudden they twitch and wake you up as their nervous system is like discharging. That's all that is. It took me a while to really realize that uh that, that the, you know, finger in a light socket is not what chi, what's happening when the chi is really activating in a self-regulatory way. That's just epiphenomena at best. That this quieting is where the system's going to be able to go, okay, now I know what to do with this input that I, I'm either getting or not getting. I can self-regulate.
0: You know, it, it seems to me, if someone's going to approach this work, it's probably really important to have your own personal senses of what it is to be down-regulated, reg- what it is to be quiet, and what it is to be still. Because if we can't experience it for ourselves, how would we possibly recognize it in someone else?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I learned this stuff in a you know, I've been a meditator all my life, and yet when I learned this in a formal context in a cranial capacity, you know, we're we're learning to palpate for all these different kinds of rhythms and tides and things that are even much more subtle than anything we've talked about. But it's all happening in the first place we experience it is, is in ourselves. And the thing is that this goes too, to like working with patients. It's not just a thing between you and your patient. It's a field phenomena in the room. And that, that's one of the reference actually, whether that's actually a palpatory phenomena but it is an experiential referent where the entire room gets quiet. Yes. You know, you, the, there's no less traffic moving by outside. There's people outside the door talking or whatever, but somehow the room is quiet. That's a referent for that that level of self-regulatory stillness happening. You know, my one of my favorite allusions to this uh, in the the Nadon literature literatures by uh, Wu Shu, you know, he talks about the Taiji, the supreme ultimate, is still and pure and yet seems to stir. That it's a stillness that's deep and profound, and yet it's alive. It's not like, oh, okay, we've all just died and somehow we can... Right. It's not static. It's not static. It is alive. That passage for me is is such a, a rich allusion to what the ground of you know real deep transformation is in the internal cultivation tradition you know the, the Nadon tradition it's, it's that that's where primal chi is primal chi isn't this kundalini thing that's blasting up your your central vessel and fire coming out of the top of your head it's this deep primordial quiet that then informs the entire system it informs the room and it, it you know, we could say well it, get all cosmic around it. It forms the universe. But that's the palpatory reference for primal chi, right? So like, yo, I'm needling the source points. I must be accessing the primal chi, or I'm needling the source points deeply, because uh, so I must be accessing the primal chi. I I have a different take on that. It depends
0: on what you feel in the room, I suspect. There's
2: a context for that, is what that is. Like whatever you do kind of mechanically, performatively, it has to happen in that context.
0: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing Well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, I am definitely familiar with that sense, especially of coming back into the room, where I walk into the room and it's just different. And you use the term field phenomena, and that makes sense. I've done some reading on Rupert Sheldrake's work with uh, morphogenic fields and such. And, And, you know, I think as human beings, we know the power of these fields because we can sometimes just walk into a room and go, ah, and there's other times we walk into a room and go, I'm getting out of here. Field phenomena is true. And then I don't think you used the word intention. Maybe you did, but it came up in my mind. And I wanted to ask this question because I hear this a lot that That intention, I'm using air quotes here, intention is important. We have to have intention in our work. A practitioner's intention is somehow germane to a good treatment. And I mean, I just don't know about any of that. Because often for me as a practitioner, I mean, I want my patient to do better. I want them to feel better. I want them to heal whatever healing might be for them. But my idea of what might be right for them and what's actually right for them might be two really different things. So I'm not sure really what I think about intention. It's, it's a big question for me. It's, it's got a giant question mark after it.
2: Certainly people can project their own chi, right? I'm going to project my chi with such force that I uh, you know, knock you across the room without touching you. You know, we see Qigong masters do that kind of thing. And that's an intentional manipulation of Qi, which is fine. That's like yo-wei, that's using activity, right? That's that's an active and engagement, right? You know, so, oh, I'm going to needle this point and with an intention to do something else. And that there's certainly a place for that. I want to, before I say anything else, really acknowledge the place for that. That, that if we're going to talk about something like, uh, effortless activity, woo Wei. that's not that we're not doing it, anything, but what we're doing is we're doing the most appropriate thing at a given moment. And that may in fact be something very intentional. But the aspect that really interests me that I've really tried to cultivate in myself and what I have to say about this has much more to do with kind of what underlies that intention, which is attention just simply the capacity to attend. That in many ways is much harder to just be there and and just be present and just be present, really present and not thinking about what's your next move going to be, what point are you going to do, what has to happen, what's happening with the office laundry or lunch, just to be present and attentive and to really listen to what's going on. That, you know, for me is, is far more powerful in many ways. And it's a context for getting myself, my own agenda out of the way and trying to listen to what the system's trying to do, rather than have some idea about I am doing an extraordinary vessel treatment, for instance. I don't so much do extraordinary vessel treatments, you know, I'll say, oh, is this, does this look like an extraordinary vessel presentation? And I may start, that process and see that, oh no, in fact, it is not an extraordinary vessel process. It's something else. It would have been very cool if I could have made it about the extraordinary vessels or the channel divergences or something, but oh, maybe it was just a channel sinew thing. And I just had that experience the, the other day. I wanted to make it all really elaborate and complex. And it was actually the thing that was happening was something that's much simpler. And that I'm trying just to respond to that. And part of the way you do that is by attending.
0: Tell us about that. Tell us what happened in that treatment. You're going in a certain direction. Oh, I think it's this. What caught your attention? What made you realize as you were attending that, oh, it's not this, it's that? Were you using some of these palpatory findings? Were you, what were you paying attention to? you know, because I know often I've got an idea in my mind. I've got like a map. I'm going from here to there. And I know these points do this and that. And it's very easy to to get stuck in that map of my mind. And yet I also have had moments, luckily enough, when I just catch something, I put a needle in and go, oh, that's so not right. So I'm just curious to hear what your process was around catching this.
2: It's actually a very simple case at the end of the day. And the patient had come in and he had been sick and had some lingering sinus congestion occurring in a larger constitutional context of, uh, you know, his, uh, some pretty weak lungs and that sort of thing. So I was doing some of the, the cranial assessment that we do in the Engaging Vitality Work assessing for cranial based strain patterns and saying, well, okay, fine. You know, I'm factoring all that into my phlegm heat in the lung orifices and thinking about my herbs and, you know, what channels go through there and whatnot and feeling his cranium. And as I'm doing this, assessing also his ethmoid and going wow there's it's it's sticking on the left side and this is maybe a this is a little embarrassing to say but like I know this guy He's actually my personal trainer and he's also a wrestling coach and but part of it is uh, it's really easy for me to forget background information until it's immediately necessary when I'm palpating you know so I'm just palpating and going wow this guy's ethmoid is really stuck and that's significant. And then I'm really like, Oh yeah, that's right. Three weeks ago, he got clocked by one of his high school wrestlers in the nose and it jammed up his nose. I mean, he still has a scar there, but I'm just all feeling what's going on there. And like, you going, Oh wow, your ethmoids. That's significant. You know? So I, I, I didn't intellectually bring that in as something. It was just something I felt. So, I was trying to figure out how to get his ethmoid to, to, to release. So, I'm, I'm actually up, you know, kind of on the bridge of his nose there, thinking, well, what, what is that? And how do I do that? And one of the things that Dan Bensky and I have done is we kind of mapped out the channel divergences through the nasopharynx and the throat up through the cranial base and looking at where their terminuses are in the head and thinking about those in terms of cranial strain patterns. So I'm thinking, oh, is this, you know, second confluence or third confluence, and that's going to be the thing that, or maybe first confluence, is that going to be the thing that, that really releases that? And we have a way of, of checking that, and none of that is actually significant. And I go back and I take his pulse and his right no, his left proximal position superficially is just a little hard. Oh, maybe it's a bladder channel thing. Oh, wait, the bladder channel ter- starts at bladder one. Oh, so I do channel listing and the manual thermal technique that we use for picking points. And, oh, bladder 67. So this is like a channel sinew thing on the opposite end. We do bladder 67 and his ethmoid releases, you know, and then everything else, you know, the Clouds parted, the sun right. came Trumpet. out. You know, he said, I can breathe now, okay. I can see clearly now. <laughs> you know, whatever. But I mean, it was an example of where I, I wanted to make it something, you know, kind of kind of a little cool, but actually it was something much simpler. And I just had to really pay attention to that and go, nope, nope, that wasn't right.
0: That's a great example. And it brings up another thing <laughs> that's kind of near and dear to my heart, which is I am so often wrong about so many things. And in clinic, I'm often wrong. Hopefully, I'm wrong in ways that are helpful to my patients because it gets me back on track to something that might be more helpful. Well, I mean, we're taught to want to be helpful, and we want to be helpful, and God love us, we want to be right, but so often we're wrong. It's great hearing what you've just described. You've got these different ways of paying attention and attending to what's going on so that you can course correct as you go through your treatment.
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, the more palpatory tools you have and that you are attending to, the less likely that you are to go, oh, I'm the pulse person and the pulse must be right, right? Because we know the pulse isn't always right. I mean, they've known that since the Nanjing. That's a, that's a thing in the Nanjing. That's how they kind of developed abdominal diagnosis. So sometimes the pulse doesn't. Why doesn't the pulse always tell us the the right information? So it's kind of like a a willingness to prove yourself wrong. That's really the basis of scientific method, right? And you have to be kind of fearless about that. And it's funny, like, you know, patients actually, they come to really appreciate that when you go, no, no, we can do better than that. Because they don't know whether you're BSing them when you go, oh, that's great, right? But if you go, no, no, I think we can do better than that. Ah, I like that better. At very least, it means that you're taking the time to pay attention.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like sometimes I'll I'll take a needle out of somebody after I put it in, and they're like, "Why'd you take it out?" I go, "Wasn't right." Yeah, yeah. And so I went, oh, yeah, wow! Right. This guy's paying attention. You mentioned the divergent channels, and and I wanted to get to that. I know we're getting a little close to the end of our uh, conversation today, but I wanted to to touch on the divergences a bit. You mentioned it here in this treatment that you were just talking about. It's something I wanted to speak with you a bit about today. I don't know about you when you were in school, but I know that for me, the divergences seemed kind of like a footnote. We got a little bit about it, but not much. And I can't say that I really know much about the divergences at all. And you've written a whole book on it.
2: I think that uh, the reason that you haven't seen much on the channel divergences is, is because there isn't much. You actually got me thinking about this not too long ago, but Really, this is the golden age of channel divergence therapeutics, the last 30, 40 years. Prior to that, there is very little in the literature. There's only one chapter in the Neijing that really explicitly speaks to the channel divergences. The other places where people say, oh, that's a channel divergence reference, you're really reading into the literature in in very questionable ways. Uh, you know this notion, for instance, that uh, chapter Five of the Ling Shu, when they talk about extraordinary pathogens entering the separate channels is a is a reference to the channel divergences is just. Uh, you know, really indefensible on sinological terms. Like the, the, it doesn't work grammatically. It doesn't work in the context of the passage itself. It's incoherent on lots of different levels. And that's not to say that you can't do something with that, but it's an example of how we've really had to read into the literature kind of uh, with uh, many grains of salt in order to come up with anything more about the channel divergences than what it says in Shu 11, where they just
0: lay out the trajectories and you have to infer from there what they do. So there's not much in the literature. And you say in the past 30 years or so, there's been much more of a look at it. I'm curious about your particular perspective on these. What are your thoughts on on the divergences in terms of the kind of pathologies that might show up with them, and how would you know I mean you mentioned in this just a moment ago in this treatment that you thought maybe there was something to do with the divergences What kinds of things are you looking for when you're thinking about the channel divergences being an issue, and then how do you go about treating that stuff
2: well, okay, so. Let's start with the channel divergences are yin-yang pairs. It's bladder, kidney, gallbladder, liver, that sort of thing. There's six yin-yang pairs. And the pairs communicate with their associated viscera. And then they all go through the chest. Uh, Some of them go through the heart. Some of them just go through the chest in a more general area, in a more general way. And they transit the throat and terminate as a single unit on the yang channel in the head, their associated yang channel in the head. So that's all we can really say about them. To the extent that what kind of qi they contain, I think the most reliable thing we could say is, well, they access zong qi, the qi of the chest, which is you know kind of the sum total of all the different qi in the body, really, that because they all go through there. That's a reasonable inference, I think most of my exposure to the channel divergences really come out of the stuff I did with Mickey Shima around uh, you know, the Japanese approach, where they really downplay like, a lot of the theoretical inference. They're much more interested in trying to come up with ways of using them and, and playing with that. Their goal was to use the channel divergences as part of a larger project of just making full use of the channel system. It is plausible to say, oh they they are a deeper pathway. I mean I, I, we we did use the word deeper pathways in the book we did so I have to cop to that <laughs> that it is a deeper cop it, it, it is a deeper pathway in some in some respect or another, but uh, they do come superficial
0: and they go to the viscera so they go. They go surface and they dive deep,
2: right? So, so that I think that there's that. You know, I think if you see a deep problem, that's a plausible question. Oh, could this be a you know something that's more about the viscera than the the channel itself? That's a possibility. Then you know something where you have oh, I think this is a kidney problem, but it's actually somehow related to something that's going on in the chest, the throat, or the head. That's an obvious question to ask, could that be a channel divergence thing? Now, you know, I spent uh, a lot of time trying to lay out these different diagnostic criteria that Mickey was into in the 80s in the book, you know, with uh, kind of the Monica style bias based methodology. And Mickey liked to do a lot of stuff with Akabani around picking channel divergences and that sort of thing. And for me, I keep it much more simple than that. Over time, there seemed like oh, there is a pulse quality that I also associate with the channel divergences, and that is like a lack of consolidation. Like a pulse could be big and strong, even, but you don't, you can't feel the borders. That whether that is something that is at the end of a treatment, you you've improved the pulse, but it, it's it's unconsolidated in that way. Or unconsolidated could also, in this context, maybe mean overly consolidated as well. It's like the border is, is unhealthy in some way. That's something that makes me think, oh, could this be a channel divergence treatment? You know, it is... I don't want to oversell it as the palpatory referent for the uh, channel divergences because I think there's a lot more, a lot of people are talking about the channel divergences now much more than ever before, but not many people are I, that I know of are saying, oh, I have a palpatory referent for the channel divergences. When I feel this and I can transmit that palpatory referent to interested and committed individuals, recipients, then I'm interested in that because I don't think we have uh, an optimal set of palpatory reference for the channel divergences. It, you know, nothing near what we have in terms of the extraordinary vessels where you have two different systems of, of uh of abdominal diagnosis, uh, uh, v- virtually two different systems of pulse diagnosis, uh, coming through the Qi Jing Ba Mai Kao and uh, the Bin Hu Mai Shui, both Li Shijen's work. And then, you know, some of the other things that we do in the engaging vitality work where we listen to the extraordinary vessels through the fluid body. That's an inference drawn on how Li Shurgin put everything together for the extraordinary vessels. We really have nothing like that in the channel divergences.
0: Well, maybe it's our job at this time, since there's so much interest, to start to find these patterns and share them, see if they hold up.
2: Right. You listeners out there, you get on that and Michael will have you on the show.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
2: Michael, I would really like to paste in a little earlier a, a, a definition of what I think the alchemy piece is and how it works and how it relates to everything else. Because I mean, one of the things that we kind of skipped over was well, why are we talking about internal cultivation, and why are we talking about, to some extent, why why am I I interested in the the Nadon current in particular, uh, and you know this really does come through the Chijing Ba Mai Kao, where that's the current that Li Shijian is is presenting to us. But the nadon itself is really, you know, inextricably connected to all of the other internal cultivation practices, or many of them, that are probably going to be of interest to traditional East Asian medicine practitioners in the West. Zen is a great example. Like, you can't really talk about the development of that alchemy tradition without acknowledging the conversation that it has had with the Chan uh, current, the Zen current in China. And it's a filter through which we can access many different currents of internal cultivation practice. And the thing about it is is that it is among the most embodied. Fundamental premise of that is that it is an embodied process of transformation, that, you know, we don't just work for with chi as a means for making our physical vessel ready for something more real, something more subtle, something more transcendent, that, you know, we're always working with chi. And, you know, because we or always orienting to chi on some level or another, particularly you know, through the extraordinary vessels, for instance, that those ideas are at least potentially translate to the medicine. That was Li Shijen's idea about that. So, you know, it's it becomes a matter of saying, well, if I understand the principle of what is being transmitted in this this uh, nadon current and i understand that principle how that principle works in my own body i can experience it in my own body then why shouldn't that principle be operable on some level or another in another person's body Uh, and that then the, the the trick is well how what means do we have for actually tracking that you know, as you said, the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to experience these things in our own body. But then beyond that, we need a vocabulary, a, really a consensual vocabulary of palpation to say, oh, yeah, I feel this going on. And you know, so you have some capacity for inter-examiner uh, accord on what we're feeling, and and you know that's where some of these osteopathic palpatory skills really provide a a great link for translating these these ideas and internal experiences into something that's you know much more clinical. You know, that's a a, a big part of. Uh, you know my interest in this. i'm I'm not trying to be a historian or present myself as an authority, certainly not an authority in any particular current of uh, nadon. As a matter of fact, I'm more, much more interested in the larger currents, uh, because I think if if those are there and those, those transcend any particular take on nadon, I think they're more likely to be real. And those are the ones that we want to really be looking at in terms of our engagement of that literature in medicine, like stillness
0: is a, a great example of that. In essence, could I say we should put down the Facebook feed and sit down on the cushion instead? Well, What's Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Hey, Chip, I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that.